It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. We've been talking about the Me Too movement at length. As the year draws to a close, we're thinking more about what gender equality could really mean. Today we discuss the Republican tax plan, evangelicals and the president, and ways that our everyday conversations can promote greater equality between men and women. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We want to run through our schedule with you for the next couple of weeks before we dive into the Republican tax plan. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about the Washington Post report on the CDC, and then we're going to talk about Politico's article on Jen Hatmaker and the hate mail that she has gotten since she broke ranks with evangelical support for President Trump. Then our main segment will talk about gender equality in conversation. So first, Christmas is coming, and we are going to be traveling and doing some other things with our families. So we will have for you this coming Friday an interview with Sarah Chamberlain, who is the CEO of the Republican Main Street Partnership. It's a conversation that I had with her a couple of weeks ago. I think you'll probably hear in it some of my soul-searching about the Republican Party, but I'm looking forward to your thoughts on that conversation. 
Next Tuesday, we have a very special year-end reflections episode where lots of friends of the podcast, including some of our listeners and patrons supporters, um, will come together to help us reflect on all the things that we learned in 2017. And we're using Tish Oxenrider's New Year's Reflections questions to do that. So thanks very much to Tish for her questions and also for being one of the many voices that you'll hear on that podcast. Then the next Friday, we'll have a new episode of Pantsuit Politics for you. And then early in January, we'll be rerunning the Great Redhead Debate. We have a number of new listeners, and we thought that would be a good way to introduce you to some of our differences, since lots of our topics at the end of this year have really been areas of common ground for us. So we hope you'll hang with us as there's some um, holiday scheduling, some special programming that we're really excited about. But today we're going to kick off by talking about the new tax plan. The Republicans in Congress have put together their the House version and the Senate version of this bill. Co- cobbled together? Cobbled together, I think, is probably. Cobbled, I think, is an appropriate verb. If mm-hmm. one can cobble a thousand pages of legislation. And there's some conflict over when exactly this will be voted on. Republicans are eager to get it done in advance of Christmas, they've said. And then Democrats would like Doug Jones to be seated in the Senate before it's being voted on. Senator McCain is going back to Arizona because of health issues. There's a lot going on around the drama of voting on this tax plan. Mm Mm-hmm. So we thought we would run through a little bit of what's in it. The fundamentals that we've talked about before are pretty well intact. This is a tax cut mostly for corporations. There are tax cuts for individuals. It is adding over a trillion dollars to the national deficit. Republicans claim that it will pay for itself, but even people who are in favor of this bill recognize that that's a gamble. For individuals, despite claims that this is a simpler tax reform you know, a simpler way to reform the tax code. We still have seven brackets. Most of those individual rates are going to go down. The standard deduction is going to be doubled, which could increase some simplicity because unless all of your deductions exceed this new higher standard deduction, there's no reason to itemize on your taxes. It also eliminates personal exemptions, which I've heard less about. And depending on your financial situation, that elimination of the personal exemptions could negate the impact of your lower rate. It caps the state and local tax deduction at $10,000. There was there was discussion about eliminating the state and local tax deduction. This bill preserves it, um, but it is capped now. And remember, that only matters if all of your deductions are going to exceed the standard deduction. It expands the child tax care credit a little bit. Hmm. So for lower income people, this might mean a $75 credit. What Marco Rubio fought for was moving the kind of the next bracket from $200 to $800. So there's a lot of ink being spilled about what amounts to $600 for many families. And it also makes the child care tax credit available to higher income levels. So the maximum benefit from the child care tax credit goes to households making $400,000 or more a year. And it creates a temporary $500 credit for non-child dependents. I will say this is one thing that I think is a positive development. Even though $500 is not much, a recognition 
of non-child dependency and the impact that type of caregiving has on families is a small step down a long road that we need to take as a country. Mm-hmm. So I felt good about that, Sarah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, my husband and I sat down and sort of looked at how this is going to impact us, speaking of children. And if you have two children, the changes to the standard to, or the, the exemptions is pretty good, but any gains we make under the um, rate, the lowering of the rate and the standard deductions is going to be wiped out because we have three kids, and so um, the elimination of those additional exemptions is going to hit us. We feel particularly bad. We were thinking about some families we know with we know a family of eight with has eight children. If you have a lot of kids, this is no good because you lose a lot. You lose those additional um, exemptions you get for having a bunch of kids. So that really stinks. I'm sure this is going to hit some families with a lot of kids really hard. And it is frustrating to recognize how your taxes are going to be impacted while reading stories about how they snuck in this big um, tax relief for real estate developers that's going to have like a multi-million dollar benefit to our president. Again, the contrast when you're trying to like eke out $600 here or realizing it's going to, you're losing the additional exemptions for your children, all these things while simultaneously reading about the windfalls for the wealthiest Americans is frustrating. Steve Ratner, an economist that frequently appears on Morning Joe, visually depicted this tax plan in a number of really compelling ways. And that is the story. The story is that the more money you make, the better this is for you. Mm. And that the bulk of the impact here is on the corporate side. And so it really does hinge on the idea that corporations are going to share that wealth. And we just don't have any evidence of that. I ke- have you seen Sweeney Todd, Sarah? No, actually, I never have. I mean, I know it, but I've never seen it. Well, so there is a storyline in Sweeney Todd about selling a miracle elixir. And there's a whole song where... They're out advertising Pirelli's Miracle Elixir. And then one by one, as people purchase it, they realize that it's urine. Mm-hmm. And that's what I keep thinking about in the sales job that's happening on sort of the supply side economics aspect of this tax plan. There's all this discussion. It's going to create jobs. It's going to bring businesses back to the United States. I don't see it. I hope I'm wrong because we're about to take a huge gamble with my future and yours, right? Mm-hmm. This is this is much more going to affect people under 40 than over 40 in the yeah. long haul. And I hope that I'm outrageously wrong about what's going to happen as a result of this. Oh man. And I I'm I'm still holding out a little hope because of the the voting situation that maybe it won't pass or maybe someone will use the impending seemingly likely government shutdown um, to hold it up but I think it's probably going to go through and I think that it is a gamble and I think that it's not again the important part for me that I really can't understand with regards to the Republican Party is it's not just a long-term gamble it's a short-term political gamble that doesn't make any sense to me if you want to win. They're gambling that it'll be more important that they pass something than that Americans won't blame them for their higher tax bills. I just, I don't really understand I think they're making that gamble. I mean, this is really cynical, but I think they're making that gamble because they can say 
in advance of the next election that your taxes are going down, people won't pay those taxes until after they voted. Ugh. Yeah, but they vote again for you guys. You're going to be on the ballot the, like for the foreseeable future, right? So even if you get one election, what are you going to do when people get really pissed? The election after that and the election after that. And they blame you for these things. I don't I really don't get the political calculus here. I'll be honest. You know, we've talked a lot about things that we want to leave behind going into 2018. A question that I am really marinating on and I want to spend some time with in 2018 is when the profit motive became synonymous with maximizing profit. Because were those things not the same, you could foresee a future where corporations say, wow, we have to pay so much less in taxes. I want to start paying some of our people better because I want to hold on to those people. I want to recruit some new workers. I want to make some things easier. This is a break for us. And so let's make things a little better. And I genuinely do not believe that is going to happen nine times out of 10. And why is that? I just want to understand, I guess, when, how, and why we decided that I, it's not enough to make a profit. You have to maximize the profit. I see small businesses make decisions that don't maximize profit all the time because they're good decisions for their businesses and for their communities and for the people who work for them. I don't know if it has something to do with uh, director and officer liability, but I would like to understand better why at the mega level we've gotten this prevailing philosophy that corporations have to maximize profits. Because I think it's having an enormous societal impact. Well, it reminds me of the um, movie, The Corporation. Have you ever seen that movie? No. Um, The premise of the documentary is, in the law, we treat corporations as legal persons. And if the corporation is a legal person, what kind of person are they? And they use the DSM um, diagnosis for a psychopath <laughs> and they go through every single one and but then in contrast they have so many corporate leaders who were like I just decided I didn't want to do that anymore like I just decided that there's not one way to be a corporation there's not one way to benefit shareholders um, and to really push back against this concept of um, the maximum profit is the only way you measure a success of a corporation it's a really really good movie highly recommend it I will put it on my holiday viewing list. Because otherwise, it really is. It's just a um, the drive for maximum profit it clicks off those uh, psychopathic characteristics pretty quickly. There was another news story that one might put into the DSM category <laughs> this week. So but true. fortunately, I think we have an update that makes it less concerning. The CDC reportedly, the Washington Post reported that the CDC had received a list of banned words from their budget proposal. And those words included diversity and fetus and transgender and a number of other words. Evidence-based. Yes, evidence-based. Words that one would hope a scientist would need to use. Yeah, I don't know how you talk about the Zika virus without using the word fetus. Fortunately, the CDC director has said that this was a mischaracterization of what occurred. I don't feel great about the real story, but I feel better about it. The, what seems to be developing is a sense that 
these words were flagged as words that might hold up the budget in Congress Mm. and that it would be easier to get it through without using these words. Again, don't feel great about that. To me says that we are really reaching the lowest common denominator in our governing philosophy. But I do feel better than an actual banned words list, which is a thing that I had trouble believing existed in 2017. That is such a science fiction outcome. Well, here's how what I feel about this story. One of our uh, one of Tish's reflection questions that we're thinking through through the lens of politics is what was my biggest time waster? And if I want to do this, except for I think it would be too depressing. I want to go back. I wish there was a way to go back over the course of 2017 and see all the stories that we and like sort of measure the energy and stress and time posting about it on Facebook that we all spent on things that were overblown or overreported or just did not matter. And how often as a nation we were distracted by the falsely urgent at the cost of the really, really important. And I just think this story is reflective of that trend where we all decide that this is proof that everything is lost and then, you know, two weeks later we've totally forgotten about it and because it wasn't that big of a deal or because we overreacted. And, I'm, you know, I think that it's – it's like you talked about on Twitter. It, gets, it feels good to react in those ways and to go for the stories that really bring out the extreme reactions. But, man, it does not serve us. And there's damage in the process because it is a time when the media, more than ever, needs to be seen as a measured, impeccably sourced and honest referee. And when anything is wrong, we've seen what happens. And so this was really unfortunate. Really was. Speaking of unfortunate, uh, there was a really good article in Politico about Jen Hatmaker um, and the fact that she received death threats when she spoke um, openly about her opposition to Trump. I also think it fits within a broader conversations people are having about evangelicals and the politics of evangelical Christians um, sort of post-Roy Moore. Um, I cannot – I struggle – with the death threat part is really what bothers me, that you would threaten someone's life over your identity as a Christian. But Beth and I were talking this before the show, and I think for me what I've realized is that there are people who see religion as a battle, sort of a a spiritual warfare that needs to be fought, and there are people who see religion as a, a caretaking of, a, of spiritual wounds that need to be healed. And man, those people see the world really differently. <laughs> I think you can guess which side I'm on. Although I do love righteous fear. Righteous anger is one of my favorite emotions, but I really do try to tend toward the latter. I want to have this conversation with respect for our listeners who are atheist or who have expressed in no uncertain terms that they are not interested in hearing about religion. So please just bear with us because I do think that this is unfortunately becoming politically more relevant than it's ever been Mm. and culturally relevant. I also want to say that I am not evangelical and never have been. I don't identify under any, there are many definitions of evangelical. I don't qualify under any of them. I don't believe that I exist on earth to 
share the gospel of Jesus Christ so that others will profess their faith in him. So that's, that's just not where I am. I believe that God is love and my work here as a human being is to deepen my understanding of that love so that my life can be a full expression of it. So again, really different places. There's some overlap on the Venn diagram of those things, but they're different. So I don't want to be seen as trying to represent all or any part of evangelical Christians. And I don't want to talk about evangelical Christians as though they're homogenous because they very much are not. I think within the evangelical community, both of the groups that you described, Sarah, can exist. You can have that sense of there's a battle happening between good and evil and also a sense of trying to heal the world. So it's complicated. In all of those categories, I'm having a hard time bridging the gap between the principles of Christianity and Donald Trump. And I'm having a really hard time understanding how we keep inching. I'm having trouble bridging the gap between what I view as the core principles of love your neighbor as yourself and unmitigated tribalism. And unmitigated tribalism, I think, is what we're seeing when we have the sense that voting for Roy Moore is a righteous act. And we see people on television saying that they're praying that President Trump fulfills God's promises for our country. Like, I just, I don't get it. You know, I've been in church my whole life, not evangelical churches, but churches, and I don't get it. So I read this article that I'm obsessed with. I just posted about it on all our social media pages in all caps. Everybody has to read it. Um, It's called Pro-Life Voters and Pro-Choice Politicians, and it was sent to us by a listener named Valerie. And I didn't realize until after I read it that it's – it was by Michael Ware, and he worked on Obama's faith initiatives. And I've heard him on some other podcasts, and I just put the two and two together that this is him. It is so good. And what I love the most about it is he talks about when you make pro-life or pro-choice or evangelical, if when you tie all that up, that identity up in voting, in the act of voting, you lose the perspective that voting isn't really about you. Voting is, he calls it a prudential act, that it's about what... He says, this is his answer, pro-life Christian would support a pro-choice politician if they believe that in spite of the candidate's position on abortion, a vote for that candidate is the best way to intend their vote for the good of their neighbor. And so I think how we, the good of their neighbor, this idea that we are all connected and that um, how you treat the least of these within Christianity, we just... There is no connection between that and tribalism. It is the opposite of tribalism. Tribalism is what led to the Crusades. Tribalism is I will fuel this for my own. This is this is um, a fuel for my most basic, you know, animalistic needs as a human. Because I, you know, I think there is a role for tribalism. There is a role in which we need to, and maybe it's not tribalism, maybe it's just a different sort of connection, in which we look around and we say, we're part of a collective. What does that mean? It means I can't just represent my own interests, that I have to bring my perspective to the table with a respect for other people's perspective. But when you, I think when you see the world in this sort of battle, as a battle zone, and you believe that your side represents 
good and the other side represents evil and that it's so and it's when the stakes are that high there's not much you can't sacrifice for the good of the tribe right every sending someone a death threat becomes suddenly allowable when the stakes are heaven and hell in the future of humanity you know what i mean I do. And I'm sitting here almost wondering how much tribalism is about connection to others versus self-identity. And I know that there's a part of that self-identity that comes through connection to others. But I don't think that much of what's happening right now is about the good of any group of people. Mm. I think it is a lot about having a label and a box to fit within, because the truth is, Whatever Jen Hatmaker thinks about marriage equality, you can disagree with her and go into the voting booth and do exactly the opposite of what she says and leave it at that, right? If that's your principal disagreement, you can do that. That's not what people are doing. They are burning pages of her books and mailing them to her and threatening her family. Mm. That, to me, does not have anything to do with principal disagreement, That's something altogether different. I caught a little piece of an interview with the guy who's trying to help people exit white supremacist groups. He's doing really great work, and I will find some information on him and put it in the show notes. But what I kept hearing in the little bit that I caught of this interview is that he understands that there are white men, especially younger white men, who are struggling to be something. And just to have something that's theirs. And so this becomes really attractive to them. Just like lots of things that aren't good for us become really attractive to all kinds of people when we're really struggling with our identities. And I think that's more of what some of this is becoming, that it's just a struggle for who am I? Mm -hmm. And that's a hard question to answer. But this is where like the Buddhist in me surfaces a little bit. Because I'll tell you that I feel really free now that I don't have to think of myself as a Republican anymore Mm. to be able to look at this and say, I do have a core ideology. It is more conservative than the, what I think is the center of American politics. And I don't need a label so badly that I'm willing to lose all that core ideology in order to adhere to the label. And honestly, and this is going to be a hard thing for a lot of people to hear, and I'm probably going to get a lot of email, and I understand. I don't really think of Christianity as a part of my identity, because when Christianity becomes about things like this, I want to let that label go and keep it about the principles that are really at the core of what I believe. You know what I mean? So I'm not anxious to go register as a Democrat, in part because I still have lots of disagreement, but also because I'm sort of happy to lose a label. And I think that losing some labels would help all of us a little bit if what if what we're doing is attaching so heavily to those labels that it becomes only about like the farthest place those labels can take us into what makes us feel like we're winning. So I'm going to get I'm going to get a little woo woo here, just a little bit. I promise not to get to go on it for too long. But I just think that the deep hunger for a source of identity, a tribe. I mean, we this is a human urge, 
This is why people join gangs. This is why people join white supremacy. This is why people become religious zealots. This is why people become terrorists. Because there is a need to belong. I think it is more intense when people um, don't feel a source of love and connection in their um, sort of primary relationships. That's why I'm getting a little woo-woo here. Like, I'm not saying all everything bad in the world is because people's mamas didn't love them enough. Although, I don't know. I think you can make that case as well. Um, and because our modern life allows such isolation and offers consumerism as an answer to that need, to that desire to connection, I think that, you know, the source of anger and frustration that people funnel into these, the, the dark arts, um... It's not surprising, right? It's not surprising. People are fed. People are lonely. People feel sad. And people are told that the answer is take, 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 take. And they feel a little pissed off that they were lied to. So someone comes along and says, no, I've got the real truth. I've got the real answer to that loneliness that you feel and that sadness that you feel. And what it really is is becoming a part of our tribe that tells you that you're not the problem. It's everybody else. Um. And I, I look, I get it. And I think that there is an awareness we all need to have about that sort of that exchange that's happening, not to justify it, but just to get curious about how we how people get there and how we can prevent it. Well, it's all a spectrum. Right. I think I've referenced this on the podcast before, but I'll never forget this experience I had of being at Eastern State Hospital, which is a, a mental health facility in Kentucky. And we were meeting with people who experienced really serious delusions as part of a sociology class. And after we spent time with them, our professor sat us down and said, here's how the mind works. The difference between you and them is that you can call your dreams dreams. Mm. That's it. Your capacity to label them as dreams is the only difference between you and the people that we just spent time with. And you're not guaranteed to keep that capacity to label that. And so when you talk about the need for affiliation, which is really what this is, there's a healthy place on that spectrum. Yeah. Because we all need places that are, that's what it is to be in relationship with other people, right? We all need relationships that require us to give and take. And what happens, I think, when you move away from the healthy part of that spectrum into the extremes, you get isolation. Or you get a relationship where that balance comes off. And whether you realize it or not, getting anything means someone else is taking a lot from you. Mm -hmm. And they start to take the people that love you and the principles that you thought you adhered to and your money and your time. And your sense of identity goes away while you're in search of identity. Right. And so. It's not like those people are experiencing this. We all have the ingredients to go there. It's just how can we help each other stay in the healthy range? Ooh, staying in the healthy range. That's the hard thing. That's the hard, that that's like the hard stuff. 2018. Let's try to stay in the healthy range. Yeah, everybody, everybody, 2018, <laughs> stay in the healthy range. Well, let's compliment the other side before we talk about staying in the healthy range in our conversations with men and women. Um, so I think... I want to compliment Rex Tillerson. And the reason I want to do that is because I just feel like for him to just keep on keeping on has ta- has has taken some work and taken some humility and t- 
taking some sacrifice for the greater good. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. I don't like everything he does, but I do think it's important that he stays. <laughs> so I just thought, looking back over this year, he's taking some abuse, and he probably deserves a little thanks for staying, Rex. I cannot imagine having gone from the life he had to the life he has. This is what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying. I want to compliment Joe Manchin, and I think that Joe Manchin pops up for me often because I do appreciate that he tries to balance being a Democrat with being from a more conservative state and caring about the national scene with caring about the local scene. I appreciated his comments that have kind of made the rounds of the Sunday shows and news outlets over the weekend that he really wanted to be involved in the tax plan. Like he had ideas that he thought could gain the support of a number of Democrats. I decided over the weekend that the phrase along party lines poses the greatest existential threat to our democracy that's ever Mm. existed. And I think Joe Manchin understands that on some level and wants to be part of the solution. He's aggravated that this didn't happen, but I appreciate him. Not a new observation. You and George Washington. Hello. Yeah, right. So, Joe Manchin, thanks for trying. (laughs) Thanks for trying. (laughs) So next up, we are going to talk about conversations about gender equality between men and women. So, Sarah, I've been having a long exchange with one of our listeners about the comment that I made about men instructing in their written communications and women inviting people to come alongside them and have a conversation. And that conversation has expanded into numerous conversations just in my life. And what I'm realizing is that we say that we want a whole lot of things. We never really get into the details of how to get there. Mm. And I thought it might make sense for us to spend some time talking about the way in everyday life and maybe even specifically as we navigate these discussions about what's happening with Me Too, like what do we really want from each other? How can we do this better? I um, was allowed insight into these conversations you've been having with him. And what I thought was so wonderful, which I think he got at so well, which is we don't often ask ourselves what we want from each other. We're too busy thinking what we want to get out of the conversation, which is just a hard mindset to leave. It is. It gets to some of the discussion that we were just having about what we're all looking for. That's everything, right? Everything is a search. And I think that our conversations have become very transactional. And it's like, what piece of me gets something out of every interaction that I'm having? Mm -hmm. And I think that's why politically, especially, we're constantly going to places that validate what we feel. I'm following people who are angry because I'm angry and I feel really charged by all this anger. Or I'm following people who are, this is what I do, right? I'm following people who are kind of self-righteous about what we think government should be. And it's not that. And so we're disappointed, but we're going to keep it within kind of a composed range, right? (laughs) Because that makes me feel good about being kind of a composed person. Or I want America to be great again. And I'm, I'm all in with the Trump train because that makes me feel really charged. We're all doing some version of what do I get out of the discussion? 
And I think that when men and women particularly start to engage in political conversation, that desire can take on an even more exaggerated feeling because of the practiced gender dynamics that we bring to the table. Mm -hmm. And I hate to start out with a disclaimer, but I'm going to do that. So when we say men and women, we are obviously using some shorthand for what I'm going to say are traditionally masculine traits and energies and traditionally feminine, feminine traits and energies, all of which exist in all of us in different degrees, right? And I don't mean to stereotype or exclude in any way as we have this discussion. I think that's a good disclaimer. Well, it's important, right? Because one of the things that came up in a conversation with someone I know in, in real life about, not that what we're doing online isn't real, but a person <laughs> that I physically interact with is that there are women in business, particularly, who do kind of have conversations like men. We were using the analogy that came from our listener of how men kind of play football in conversation. They are either on offense or defense. They're going to try to score. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space. 
to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Or a touchdown with what they've said and the conversations that women have with one another are a little bit more like dancing. There's not really a way to win or lose. It's more about the relationship between the people engaged in the conversation. And we feel like we're enriched by having done the activity. So my friend in in person said, look, a lot of women are playing football every day. Mm. And I think some women are naturally wired to play football. They have more of that traditionally masculine energy that they bring to the table. And maybe that makes them more successful in business because it's built on traditionally masculine energy in all of its structures. And maybe some women adjust to that. You know, I've tried to teach myself to play football in conversations when I needed to, because sometimes you need to. And I would say the biggest challenge of my professional career has been finding a way to have professional conversations that are effective while still being myself. So here is where I struggle recently. I can play football. I'm into that. And I didn't think there was ever a scenario in which people would like sort of ask for my perspective and I would want to give it in a very transactional way Um, because I really like to give my opinion. It's why I have a podcast. But... Like over the last few weeks, including the conversation I brought up originally, which was very like, tell me what I told you that like kind of upset me because it was very transactional. It was like, tell me what I should do, which really sat with me wrong in ways I couldn't articulate. And then I had another man approach me this week and say, I mean, I understand why women like men, if you're if you're their boss and you hold some sort of power over other women or over this woman, why you should never pat their bottom or whatever. He's like, but if you, if that man doesn't hold any power over her, like he's not her boss, then saying something so – why is saying something so flippantly such a bad thing? Basically, like, what's the problem? My first reaction was just like, I don't – why do I have to explain this to you? <laughs> why do I have to explain this to you? Why do you feel like you should just sit down with any woman and ask her this? But I put myself out there as sort of a person super passionate about this. And I said, well, there's always power. There's always power. It's not just about – this is not – this is a conversation about sexual harassment in the workplace as it's happening. Um, that's sort of the center point. But, you know, a lot of what happened with Harvey Weinstein, these women were not his employees, but there was a power differential. And, you know – even with Al Franken and some woman at the fair, like, yeah, he didn't, quote, unquote, he couldn't fire her, but he did exhibit power in that scenario. If just by, you know, touching another person without their permission, I don't do that in my life because I just, I don't. I, the, the power differential is often enough that I've learned not to do that. And so I just think that there is... So many interesting perspectives 
And so when you have these conversations, we had a, a listener email us and say, it's like we need to have a definition conversation. And it's just with a lot of these gendered issues and gendered conversation, it's like I have to remind myself like, oh, man, we got to go all the way back to the beginning. Like there are just some fundamental things we have not defined or that we don't understand about gender. And it's making this conversation so much harder. And also, like, I don't want to do that. (laughs) I simultaneously recognize the need for definition and resent having to give them, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, let's start with power. Because I think this is something that might be news to a lot of men in particular. Most power is totally bogus. Mm. And it exists only because the person wielding it has taken it Mm. and has created a world in which they have that power over other people and other people have acquiesced. When that happens over and over and over again, everybody starts to accept it and it becomes real. And so as a woman, I have grown up in life with men and not nefariously, often out of a sense of responsibility. And some of that has to do with religion and some of it has to do with just very old concepts of what men and women biologically do. For whatever reason, most men in my life have taken the power position in my interactions with them. Mm. In our family, My husband, who is very enlightened, who cooks, who cares about our house, who is a fantastic dad, who in all respects tries to treat me as an equal, I still feel like he has the power position in our discussions. Mm. And sometimes I don't react well to that because I don't like it, you know, (laughs) and and so I'm trying to, on a very personal level, think about what all this means. I am accustomed to men who are you know, below me on the actual hierarchy of an org chart, still asserting a power position when they speak to me. We get emails from people who are, you know, in their teens sometimes that are really overbearing and taking a tone of power. So none of this has to do with like, what somebody would draw if they were writing the food chain of humanity. It's the power that people assume when they speak to each other all day, every day. That's why the term mansplaining felt so right to women and so offensive to men. Mm-hmm. Because we finally had a word, I think, for you pretty well always assume the microphone in our discussions. And it frustrates me. And I don't say anything about it because it happens to me every time I have a conversation. And so I've learned that that's just how it goes. But I'm kind of getting tired of it. Well, Anna, what I really loved um, in one of your exchanges, he said, Joff and I find myself talking with someone if they don't agree with what I'm saying. It's almost like they're saying your opinion, experience, belief is wrong. Therefore, it isn't genuine, which leads to our talk becoming more and more confrontational. And I feel like that's what happens when my husband and I talk about mansplaining, like, I am not, I feel like mansplaining is not, here's what happens. He hears me saying, you're doing this because you think I'm stupid. You're talking to me like you think I'm stupid. So I must believe that you think I'm stupid. And what I'm saying is, 
when you talk to me like that, I know you don't think I'm stupid, but that is how it makes me feel. You know what I mean? Like there's this that we always talk past each other with regards to motive. And motive is what gives us in so much trouble is this question of your experience and therefore because you're doubting my motive. So if if you're talking about your experience and it makes me feel like I'm a bad person, I know I'm not a bad person. So that means your experience must be wrong. Yes. You think I'm bad or stupid. Mm-hmm. Right. I hear that all the time. Like if and I and I do this to, to Chad, if he says something to me that I already know, I think he thinks I don't know it mm. because why else would he be saying it to me? Mm-hmm. And so then I make that mean he doesn't respect my intellect or something that mm-hmm. it clearly doesn't mean. That's not mm-hmm. what he means. But I take it that way. Why do we do that? How do we how do we stop doing that? How do we stop? If I tell you my experience and my experience makes you feel like a bad person, the answer is not to tell me my experience is invalid. Where's the step in the middle of that process in gendered conversation that we can insert? My answer, and this will evolve as I think about it more, I'm sure. Where I am at this point in considering this topic and with with huge thanks to this listener who has really kind of gone the distance with me in piecing this out. My answer right now is that on both sides of gendered conversations, we have to be less defensive. And we kind of have to adopt the Byron Katie, who would I be without that thought question Mm. before we respond, which means slowing down. Right. Because there has to be a step. We can't have the 200 millisecond feedback because we do need to just stop and say, here's what I heard. Who would I be without that thought? And then come back to the other person. So when Chad says something to me that I already know, I need to, like, recognize that voice in my head that says he thinks you're stupid and say, no, he doesn't. What would this conversation be like if I didn't react that way? But what would it be like? Well, so I think that's the question, right? Because then I could go back to him and say, I know that you know that I've been thinking about that. What do you need to hear from me right now that would make this resolve in your mind? Because you're bringing it up for a reason. Tell me about that. And maybe we use tell me about a lot more. Yeah. Well, because we're trapped in a defensive loop about emotional labor, too. Because emotional labor has become sort of a catchphrase for me to describe all the ways I feel resentment towards things and a gender. Wow, this has just become a conversation about marriage. That's cool. That's cool. That's applicable. Um, That it's just become, but it's become that that same defensive loop. And the reason I think it's applicable is we do this for all manner. It really is. It's this loop of this is how I feel. Well, how you feel makes me think I'm a bad person. It could you could do race, you could do gender, you could do abortion, whatever it is. It's how you make me feel, this is how I feel, how you feel makes me think that you think I'm a bad person, so how you feel is invalid. Well, that's a vicious cycle that we need to break, but that we are doing that same thing with emotional labor. And, you know, I did this my whole life. Every time my husband and I had a fight, I thought, well, he doesn't love me because I feel uh, I feel angry at him and I feel unloved by this the way he's approaching this. So the honest and obvious and logical conclusion to draw here is that my husband does not love me and we should get divorced. Um, because I was just so driven by that emotional reaction. And I don't know how to, in the moment, besides, like you said, just taking a deep breath, pausing, letting the silence fill the room, and saying, just preferencing, like, especially if you're engaging with someone you love or someone you're a good friend with, like, 
maybe like the disclaimers we did. I'm, I'm sharing my experience and how it makes me feel. I'm sorry if you feel defensive. I do not think you are a bad person. I do not think that you hate women. Because that defensiveness, because so often for men, because of the way I think women are socialized, I mean, it feels so harsh to me. It feels like every cell in my body is turning itself inside out when men come at me because and basically they're like, you're making me feel like a bad person. It's like every cell in my female body is like abort mission, abort mission, abort mission. This is the opposite of everything you're told. I'm just like, I'm a harmony. I know this is going to sound crazy. I really do like harmony, especially with people I know and love. I don't know how to short circuit that because then their defensiveness feels so like an attack. And, you know, I think, honestly, that's got to be on the men in the conversation. I think the men in the conversation, it's like you said, like when I recognize a hole in my experience, it doesn't make me feel like a bad person. And I don't know how to get men, except for just to hopefully raise my three boys better, to see like when you feel like you don't understand an experience or you have some privilege that's harming other people in an exchange, do not assume the defensive attack position. Just don't. Just take a minute. I I think that's got to be on them. I really do. Well, I also think that it would be helpful for men to, just as we need to trust the relationship more on the hearing end, I want men to trust the relationship more on the speaking end. Mm. So a lot of times when I feel instructed by men, it is coming from an emotional place, but they're phrasing it in a non-emotional way. Have you done this yet? I would hear better as, I'm a little bit worried about this. Can we talk about that? Mm -hmm. It's the same thing, right? It's just being said in a totally different way, which provokes a totally different reaction from me. And so I have my work to do on that. And then there's work to do on the other side of that equation. And that's what we mean, I think, when we're constantly saying, Trust us, this would be better for men too. Because I honestly believe that so much of what we find so frustrating comes from a place of insecurity and responsibility. The men who I know who can really have an incredible conversation that feels like talking to another woman are off the charts confident. Mm. For and and usually for a whole bunch of both internal and external reasons. Well, and here's the thing. I think it's so important, this sort of diffusing of the defensiveness situation we're talking about. Because it's, I mean, let's just, we could just take all this out and sub in white people. That would work. Absolutely. We could take all this out and sub in Christians and atheists. That would work. Like, this happens in so many different areas. And it's, I was, one of our listeners sent us an NPR article about how this group is using marriage counseling techniques to diffuse political partisanship. And they use this thing called the fishbowl where the, the one group gets in the middle of the circle and they are tasked with talking amongst themselves about their frustration with their own group. And then the other group sits on the outside and just listens. So, you know, like when I hear men in my life talk about their frustrations about masculinity or like even watching um, the masculine when you see these groups in the movie talk about the burden of this and how that feels and, you know, that that opens up a level of empathy and understanding and diffusing of my own defensiveness 
that's really powerful. And it's almost like, so I feel like if we could, I mean, I don't know how we do that as a nation, <laughs> as a mass gender, but there's also some of that, um, not just the confidence, but just re- the, seeing the vulnerability within the group itself. You know what I mean? Yes. And there are distinctions to be drawn here, right? We are not talking about, in this conversation, the way to stop massive physical abuses that are taking place. This is not Harvey Weinstein, right? This is not how you fix that. This is more about, as we really try to work toward greater equality, what's the work that we all need to be doing? And more concretely, here's a suggestion. I don't think it helps us when we use our knowledge in an offensive way. Some conversations with men that frustrate me in that sense of they feel like they have the football politically are conversations about guns. Mm. I regularly find, and look, I appreciate anybody who wants to talk to me about anything political. Obviously, I enjoy talking about politics. I think it's important. I think we all need to do it. So no offense. I often find when I'm talking to men about guns, they go to either a place of, I've looked at every study on earth, I can tell you everything about Australia, Mm -hmm. and here is why I know more than you do about this, and this is where we need to end up on guns. Mm -hmm. Or, let me tell you all about the specific characteristics of different types of weapons and how silly and arbitrary gun laws are today. And I want to make sure you understand by the end of this conversation that I know guns and you don't. And so I know better. Yes. Yes. Oh, God, I've had so many conversations like that. Or I would like to add another one. The thread that usually follows both of those for me is tell me exactly what law you want to pass because they're ready to shoot it down, pun intended, with exactly the flaw in that law. Do you get that? I get that a lot, too. Absolutely. And so then what what outcome? This is no longer a conversation. That's part of it. There is a place for soliloquy. Mm-hmm. There is a place for soaring rhetoric. Conversation is not that place. Mm-hmm. We, I think, don't do dialogue very well. And maybe that has something to do with social media because we're so often having a one-way conversation. But where do you want it to go when you're finished reciting, reciting the litany of data to me? Are, do you want our discussion to just go, oh, you're right. Change my mind. Yeah, I'm with you. You got it. And let you me know just what? Say, I'm not even going to think about this issue anymore. I'm going to defer it all to you because you're clearly the expert. Let me just say, in full humility, because that was my word for 2017. <laughs> yes, that is actually what I thought was going to happen because I watched way too much damn West Wing. And I thought, no, no, if I just get I, some people are just missing information. If I'm being perfectly humble and vulnerable, I would say that up until maybe last year, I thought. The perfect long read will change people's minds because it made me feel better, (laughs) even though it never, ever worked. It never worked for 20 years. It never worked. I think, honestly, part of that, in full disclosure, because that, in my mind, was the narrative that is what happened to me, right? I grew up in a very conservative place. I was conservative religiously, and then I went to college. I garnered all this additional information and found, quote-unquote, the right path. That was my narrative for a long time. Now, 
with the benefit of age and wisdom, I realize that narrative is a little more complex. But I just thought, well, other people just don't know what, and I found it out in college. And once I tell them, they'll change their minds too. (laughs) I mean, I do think there is honestly people, and I used to be one of them, and sometimes can revert to that easily, that if I just tell you this, yeah, you'll go, oh, okay, yeah, okay. I changed my mind. I get it now. Never mind. I think maybe that's just a human instinct. Here's what I think the deal is with that. I think that we assume motivation in really harmful ways. Yes. And we don't care about motivation in the ways that are really productive and meaningful. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to the gun conversation. I care about your data. I absolutely do. Both sides of that data I care about. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. 
comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. If you want to have a conversation instead of asking me to check yes or no at the end of your soliloquy, the conversation is, Beth, I've spent my whole life around guns. It looks to me like some of these laws are arbitrary, and it looks to me like some of these laws don't really comprehend the weapons themselves. They're just being done to pass something. Does that matter to you? What do you think about that? And then I can say, I hear you on that, and I think that's important. I also think that all laws are arbitrary in some senses. We set a speed limit, and it's just a number because we have to pick one. We draw a zoning line because we have to pick one. So how do we balance what we're trying to accomplish with the necessarily artificial nature of legislating, right? Mm -hmm. And then we can go back and forth on that. And that can be really interesting and we can both gain something from it. And at the end, we probably aren't going to be ready to go vote on something. But we don't have to be because we're not sitting in the Senate, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's no question presented like that. We make the question be presented when it's not presented. And that's why I think when it is presented, we're always in this lesser of two evils situation because we haven't done the preparatory work to all kind of getting around to what are we really trying to do here? Yeah. Yeah. And man, this motive thing, if we can find a space, like you said, to learn dialogue without, because the motive is really, we cut right to that so quickly. And as a, you know, one of the most painful aspects of being a city commissioner over the past year has been that people ascribe terrible motives to you. They just do. You do something they don't like politically, even people who are supposed to know you well assume the worst motives. And we all know like that sense of unfairness is so painful. It is so painful when you think people think you're a bad person. And that speaks to our desire and our basic human need to be connected to other human beings in a way that um, validates our own decency and dignity, right? And when and we... Sh- Go ahead. I was just going to say, you know how that relates to the conversation we've just been having with men and women? That that motive, that assumption of nefarious intent exists with you as a city commissioner because there is a perceived degree of separateness between mm. you and non-commissioners, Just like there is a perceived degree of separateness between men and women for historical reasons, we're all bringing all this baggage that we're not even conscious of most of the time to the party. And that degree of separation, especially if it starts to widen for whatever reason, makes us more and more look for the worst in each other. When I first became a manager at my workplace, I wanted to have printed really nice invitations to a holiday lunch for the people who work in our office because I felt like we weren't doing a good enough job thanking them and making them feel special. And so I wanted to have these really nice invitations that I hand delivered. So another person in my team and I walk around the office to like 100 people to personally hand out these invitations. We got looks like we were coming to issue a death sentence. (laughs) 
and people would like almost not touch the envelope. <laughs> and like I'm walking around smiling. I'm saying like happy holidays. How are you? It took a ton of work to overcome that perceived degree of separateness. Because there was no, like, the instinct is not to trust instead of to trust. Mm-hmm. And so I think maybe just being, especially when I think about what would I ask of men, it's to be aware of that a little bit. To be aware that you're on the defensive for reasons that maybe you don't fully understand. And I am too. And, and yeah. I feel a little more distance from you than you might understand. And that's okay. But, like, we can work within that. And I just think that there is also this... In- Entitlement, I feel, in dialogue that everyone is entitled to say exactly how they feel and entitled to every opinion. We have this American, I don't know if it's like the free speech thing, but there needs to be more of awareness that I'm going to, you know what, I'm going to, I might use the word politically correct here. And that I think that the idea of not everybody can say everything they want and that your position of power or privilege affects your perspective, and how people will perceive what you say. And I say all that to say, Matt Damon, meet me at the mic. So Matt Damon got railroaded this weekend for being particularly tone deaf in several interviews. When arguably he made a point that you and I have made several times on this podcast, which, yes, of course, there is a spectrum of behavior and that grabbing someone's bottom is not the same as sexual assault. A point you and I have made? A point I agree with. But dear Matt Damon, you tried to kill Harvey Weinstein stories. You pushed Casey Affleck despite his multiple and serious sexual harassment claims against him. You don't need to talk about this, my friend. No one needs your opinion on this. If they ask you, say something innocuous and confirming and move on. Like, I'm, I'm about done with Matt Damon, and I used to really like Matt Damon, but I will not be seeing Matt Damon movies because he just can't stop talking when he needs to shut up. So I'm going to try to wrap us up with four principles. Tell me what you think of these. Okay. <laughs> Maybe it's five. <laughs> okay. I would ask that we all experiment with going into a conversation, first thinking how can I be less defensive in this conversation? Mm. And I will take that one to heart personally, because that is a big struggle of mine. Second, what do I want to learn in this conversation? Because I think we're going into a lot of conversations where we're not trying to learn anything. We're just trying to express ourselves. So what do I want to learn? Third, Let me commit to this being an actual conversation that is full of actual dialogue. Fourth, think to yourself, am I the best person to say that? Mm. And recognize that sometimes you are not. You're not. Uh, Damon, that one's for you. Tattoo that on your arm. How can I end this conversation having strengthened my relationship with the person that I had it with? Mm. What do you think? I like it. Did we fix it? I'm into it. And I kept thinking about, uh, it was a Buddhist. It was Tara Brock. It was Pima Children. It was a Buddhist. I don't remember who. Who talked about compassionate abiding. Like when you have a feeling, you're not punishing the feeling. You're not trying to get rid of the feeling. You're not judging yourself for having the feeling. You're just compassionately abiding with this feeling. Right? You're just saying, hi, sadness. Hi, loneliness. I see you there. 
And I think there just needs to be like a little bit more compassionate abiding within our conversations. I think that's like the overarching theme of those five rules, compassionate abiding. Sarah, what is on your mind outside of politics this week? Um, Christmas is, is, it takes up all the oxygen in the room around this time of year. So we had like all the, all the Christmas things. We had a big party, people into our new house for the first time, lots of holiday singing, holiday violin playing, and the kids have school programs this week. I mean, it's just, you know, it's the mad, it's the full on mad dash. I got to see Darlene Love in concert, which was amazing. Do you know Darlene Love? I do not know Darlene Love. Okay, Darlene Love sings Please Baby um, Come Home that she's singing on David Letterman every single night. Um, or not every single night, every single year at the holidays. She also sang a song, very similar tone, which is my favorite Christmas song of all time from the Home Alone 2 soundtrack called Alone on Christmas. It's very like, a, she she was famous um, for singing with Phil Spector in the 60s, so like the wall of sound. She sang uh, Today I Met the Boy I'm Gonna Marry and Rebel and... Um, like those sort of like doo-wop songs, which is very famous. And she also played Danny Glover's wife in all the Lethal Weapon movies. But she's in a powerhouse. She's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Her voice is amazing. She's 76, and she was just like rocking all these songs. Um, she was also in a really good documentary you would like called 20 Feet from Stardom about backup singers that won the Oscar a few years ago. Um, totally fascinating. She, she was amazing. She was just amazing. And it was really, really, really fun to sing all my favorite Christmas songs with live in concert with the lady who made them famous. How did you feel about your new house with company in it? I loved it. I loved it. Uh, my my kitchen I want to redo is not redone, but I did some compassionate abiding with my kitchen as it is now. That's what I'm working on, compassionately abiding with my current kitchen. And, I mean, I love having – I have a holiday open house every year. We usually have 50 to 60 people come through, and it is a whirlwind, but it is so fun. I really like seeing um, all the different people from different – because I kind of just make this assumption that everyone in Paducah knows each other, but it's really fun to like see all the the different um, people in my different areas of life overlap. It's super fun. So we had a great time. Yay! So I have gotten my personal website together to start working on my coaching business that I will do alongside Fancy Politics and the Nuanced Life in 2018, and it has taken a lot of energy and time to think about exactly what I want to do and how I want to do it. I have a couple of clients already. It is super fun. Sarah, I think of you as an honorary client, even though it's not an actual like relationship, because I feel like I do for you what I want to do for other people. Let me, yeah, let me just, yeah, go ahead. You do it. I'm going to (laughs) testify this. So I'm like the beta tester basically of all things. And here is what, here is how Beth coaches me. It's freaking amazing. So Anytime I have a stressful conversation or interaction, particularly in work situations, um, I call Beth. This is when she acts as my like chief of staff, and she says, um, basically, like, okay, well, here is where I think you're right. Here is where I think you're overreacting. Here is the best strategy in which to articulate the ways that you your top priorities without falling down the emotional black hole of your instinctual reactions pretty much is what's happening. And I just feel like if everyone, like there's not enough Beth to go around to everybody, but just trust me when you have someone who can say like, okay, 
What do you want to get out of this conversation? What are you worried about happening? What has happened in the past? Let's put together a strategy for how to reach your desired outcome. I mean, I don't really know how I did it beforehand. Not well, pretty much, I think is the answer. It's amazing. Aw, thanks. Yeah, I love to help people get clear on what's important to them yeah, and then figure out how to move forward from there. And so that's kind of what I'm thinking about. If you are interested in learning more about that, you can go to bethsilvers.com. I'm also, at Sarah's advice, thinking about doing some kind of online class about boundaries yeah. in 2018. I'm going to interrupt again. Because here's the problem. Everybody's like, everybody, (laughs) Renee Brown, all the people, Oprah, all my favorite people are like, set boundaries, set boundaries, set boundaries. Okay, what does that mean? I need someone to walk me through, which Beth has done, like, what does that mean? How do you actually say, what's the best avenue to articulate it? Beth's going to say not email all the time. Just, I'm going to skip that part of the program. Even though I really just want to send emails all the time. It's so much easier. But, like, how do I do that? What should I say? What reaction should I be prepared for? What, like, it's just, every boundary is a hot word, but no one helps piece apart what that means. That's why we need this class. So I'm working on that. If you have interest in any of those things, you can email me. You can go to bethsilvers.com. I am not going to do like a regular email distribution list because I don't believe that the world needs more email in it. (laughs) So if you want to keep up with me and talk about these things, just send me a note and you can do that by email. I don't dislike email. I just don't think that you want more spam in your inbox. Um, But let me know and I'll keep you kind of apprised of what's happening. And I really just appreciate the chance to talk about it here because I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be really fulfilling. And the last thing I want to make sure that you all know, um, starting a business is wonderful. I found this with Sarah, too, because we get to decide, like, what's really important to us. And so one of the things with Pantsuit Politics and with this business that's really important to me, and Sarah shares this value, is generosity. So I am going to, every year, take up to four coaching clients for free. And so if you would like to be considered for one of those scholarships, you can just let me know that, too. You're going to get, like, 40. (laughs) That's okay. Like, there's only so much time, though, so if everybody can just understand that that might push us out into, you know, the 2020s, that's that's cool. (laughs) Well, thanks for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. I'm really excited about next Tuesday's episode So, and with for Beth's interview on Friday. So look forward to both of those. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Thank you so much to our executive producers, Nicholas, Chad, Tracy, Leslie, Sabrina, and George. You can join us on social media, Instagram and Facebook at Pantsuit Politics and on Twitter at Pantsuit Politic, no S. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com or reviews are always helpful and you can leave one through the Apple podcast app. Thank you to Dante Lima, the composer of our Pantsy Politics theme music. 